Welcome to Lumpen' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen' Radio. This week, we explored why salmon are vanishing in Alaska, dove into a heart-wrenching new novel about ALS, and discussed art and the environment. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and new music from some of Chicago's top local artists. It's the Week in Review for September 17, 2021. Chuck Mertz chatted with journalist Zachariah Hughes on his investigative story, A World Without Salmon, for the Anchorage Daily News. Amid an unprecedented collapse in Alaska-Yukon River salmon, Hughes discovered no one can say for certain why there are so few fish, but climate change is playing a major role in destroying a key industry in the region. Find out more on This Is Hell every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. In Alaska, how does culture come from fishing nets? And if the salmon no longer run, what might that do to culture? Uh, well, that's a big question. Uh, one that uh, a lot of people here have been wondering for a long time. I mean, I think it's important to start out and and say that, um, you know, it, this is almost a cliche at this point, but Alaska is pretty unique uh, compared to a lot of the continental or the contiguous United States when it comes to food supply and economy. And, uh, you know, the river systems here are still largely intact compared to the lower 48. Um, you know, I'm from the East Coast, which uh, had some amazing salmon rivers, um, you know, during the Revolutionary War, even the Connecticut River, not far from where I grew up, was one of the main food sources for the Continental Army in New England. Uh, when I grew up, you know, a couple of, uh, not long ago, uh, I'd never even heard of there being salmon uh, in the Connecticut River, uh, much less that, you know, anyone would go out and throw nets and provide for their families or their communities uh, from local rivers. And that really hasn't happened um, in any comparable way in Alaska. Uh, salmon is at the heart of so many different communities, economies, uh, so many different families, uh, ways of providing for themselves and putting food on the table. Uh, Alaska really never had any of the large-scale uh, industrialization that a lot of the uh, Western Europe and New England had on its riverways, building dams for hydroelectric. And so as a result, uh, there's been a lot of continuity in fish returns. And, uh, um, you know, the coastal Alaska encompasses a number of different indigenous groups um, all the way in the southeast from the Panhandle, which are uh, Clinkett and Haida primarily, also Shimshian, um, Alaska native groups, uh, up through where we're talking about the, the Yukon, which is primarily um, Yupik, and then further north into Inupiaq territory. All over the place, people depend on the yearly return of salmon. And in terms of, of culture, um, you know, it, it's hard to overstate. Um, whole years are planned around when the salmon return because you have this very short window of anywhere from you know four to eight weeks, depending on the species, when incredible volumes of uh, wild, healthy, natural protein returns to the waterways. And so it's not just about being on hand to catch salmon, but also having whole families around to help provide labor to uh, process them, to dry them, um, to treat them and cure them, to store them so that you can really maximize uh, storage. And so in Imanic, the, the place where we're talking about, the place where I visited for um, this series of stories, uh, you you really have families putting away up to a thousand pounds of, uh, of fish, um, something that can seem sort of abstract and unimaginable, but just hundreds of big silver salmon 
um, per family. And that's not including the commercial harvest, which is a sort of separate animal. And we can sort of split off how uh, household use and commercial use are different, but, um, you know, it's, it's kids are out of school. Families will go to what we call here, you know, camps or fish camps, um, which are oftentimes just sort of like very bare bones utility structures that families maintain and spend weeks or months of the summer at, you know, focused on food and that's family time. That's a way to pass down knowledge about, um, values and how to properly treat fish, how to work with a team, uh, and, so it really can't be stressed enough that, that salmon are at the core of a lot of different uh, family models, a lot of different cultural systems out here. So is the end of salmon then a threat to the more collectivist, communitarian type of lifestyle that the indigenous experience within the Yukon? I would, I would, I would just quibble a little bit with your premise at first about you know I, I, we don't we don't know yet if this is the end of salmon and, and certainly it's a really patchy picture around Alaska. Um, the most high profile fishery, the one that the people, if they eat salmon in, in Chicago or on the West coast, even the East coast are familiar with a lot of the time is, um, is sockeye from Bristol Bay. And that's this enormous fishery in the last couple of years. It's, it's one of the, the few bright spots. Um, and, uh, the, the returns keep going up millions of, you know, sockeye salmon are harvested there um, and sold all over the world. And so it's sort of this confounding picture where you have this very high profile instance of salmon, you know, really healthily returning, but then all over the state, it's much more patchy. And you have places like the Yukon, which were valued partly because they were really consistent returns suddenly crashing, Um, you know, add to the confusion. There's kind of five different species here in Alaska of Pacific salmon that people target and eat. Um, and some of them are doing fine. Um, some of the species like what we call pink salmon, which are sort of the smallest. And, um, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here, but least tasty salmon, they're doing great. Um, and at the same time, um, these big prize species like king salmon are declining all over the place. And there's a bunch of theories why, um, this is the same species that if people are familiar with the Pacific Northwest from California up to the Columbia river basin in um, Oregon all the way to into Seattle that have really been sort of staple harvests and um, they're down all over the place. And so uh, it's, it's a really sort of um, up and down picture. Um, you know, the, the second part of your question, um, you know, it, it, it's a major threat to how people have lived their lives, how people have structured economies out here if salmon stop showing up. And there've been declines all over the place. Um, you know, if you look at the, the large scale trends, they are, they're primarily down for a lot of these species, but it's hard to get a sense of it on a year to year basis because sometimes there'll be these booms and then other times there'll be these busts. And, um, that variability, I would say is as much of a threat in the short term as the overall declines are in the long term because people just don't they don't know they lose practice they have years like this on the yukon where there's nothing to do and so skills atrophy equipment atrophies commercial supply lines atrophy and buyers look elsewhere for consistency so i think in the short term that's the that's the major threat even as we've um we're trying to figure out you know what what's happening that's causing long-term declines overall 
we'll get back to what's happening in Bristol Bay in a little bit because that is fascinating. That's part of the kind of mystery of what is happening with uh, salmon in the Yukon region. You start your writing with Cyril Jones and indigenous man, a Yupik man, pulling up in a boat with the carcass of a moose he shot. You write, some have boated uh, hundreds of miles in search of salmon outside the region looking for salmon. Others piloted aluminum skiffs 40 miles into the open Bering Sea hoping for halibut. For Cyril Jones, the moose provided an early opportunity to put away real food with enough left to distribute to some to those who might otherwise go without. Again, there's the collectivist uh, process of indigenous culture. Can those who depend on salmon for food or a wage simply move on to different areas and fish there or simply go switch to hunting moose as a larger part of their diet? Can't they just make this process just just switching to a new substitute? They did it once with going from uh, sockeye salmon to chum, so why not just move on to another source of food again? Um, The straight answer is no. (laughs) Um, And I guess the longer version of that is you know, at the core of the Yupik value system is resilience, adaptability, resourcefulness. And so people are very good at pivoting, um, but you can only pivot so many times before you kind of run out of maneuvers. And so, you know, in a, in a down year, sure, uh, moose might be a substitute, but uh, really whole households are, are built to, you know, kind of uh, go after local uh, close by salmon, um, the equipment is there, the, the knowledge is there. Um, and it's really not tenable to send people or to, to ask people to journey, you know, 130, 160 miles in these small 20 foot aluminum skiffs in open water. Um, it's dangerous for one. Um, and then fuel is just, uh, I mean, shockingly expensive in Western Alaska. Um, so, it's it takes a huge chunk out of household budgets just to be able to sort of get out there to have a chance um and uh, you know add to that the danger and it, it really is kind of a recipe for disaster if you're if you're that becomes your primary way of doing things um and in terms of sort of the, the pivot from salmon species um you know it's it's really it's not so much that people gave up on chinook or king salmon um as those numbers have sort of steadily declined it's that those were really the first opportunity. Um, salmon, this is kind of a, a thing that I didn't know too much about, but salmon come back in waves and sort of the largest species return the earliest. So those are king or Chinook salmon, the, the most prized species, and they really start returning to the, the Yukon region in June. Um, and then the next really voluminous opportunity is chum salmon, which are also very good, um, not quite as, as fatty a lot of the time as kings, not as big but still delicious. And there's just tons of them. I mean, hundreds of thousands of fish passing through at a time. Um, and so those were really sort of the, the backfill or the, the sort of supplemental um, salmon species that people went to. It wasn't an either or, it was a sort of both and um, that people had there. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the other thing is it's hard to shoot a moose. <laughs> you know, they're, they're big. Um, hunting is... Uh, the hunting is arduous for moose. They're relatively new to that region. And so it's, it's a good opportunity for protein, but it's a very different experience. It'd be sort of like, if I told you, you know, instead of going to the grocery store where you can get all of your produce and, you know, meat and cereals and, and LaCroix, I'm not sure what your grocery basket looks like, but on one go, you know, instead you've got to 
um, go to this butcher shop on the other side of town and they might have, uh, you know, the item that you were planning your menu around. And then you've got to go to the vegetable monger on the other side of town and, and maybe they'll have something. There's just a lot more precarity than there was before. And I, I think that's a big part of what's contributing to food insecurity. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing, you know, if a thousand moose swam through the river every year and people had an equal opportunity to go out and get it, that would be great. But, uh, the, the patchwork and the inconsistency is really one of the confounding and troubling variables in what, what we're seeing right now. spoke to author Atticus Lish about his rapturously reviewed novel, The War for Gloria. Lish discussed how the book, about a woman dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and her young son, came out of his real-life experiences as the son of a famed author. Lish talked about growing up working class in Boston, how he came to embrace his literary heritage, and his unsparing portrayal of ALS. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature Show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. You, you come from a fairly well-known literary family. This is your second book, but you have a really kind of unusual background. I mean, you, uh, were, you were in the Marines for a year and a half, I understand. Uh, I know you uh, fought in mixed martial arts, which is uh, an unusual thing for a writer to do. Uh, and, of course, that found, you know, forms some of the uh, meat of your book. Could you talk a little bit about your background and, first of all, how you came in to uh, writing novels? Because it, it was an unusual uh, career path, uh, as I recall. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, well, uh, basically, you've asked me to summarize my entire life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at that. <laughs> so uh, I'll do my best. Um, so the, the first... Epoch was my childhood, and uh, my my father is a writer, editor, and teacher uh, of, uh, of of fiction. So um, there were books in the house. Uh, there was a IBM Selectric typewriter in the house. Uh, we're talking the seventies. Um, we're talking me living in a uh, small New York apartment in the fifties. Uh, on the east side near the Queensboro Bridge with my parents who had just moved there 
um, uh, from somewhere out west and uh, had started a life in New York and I came along and um, I, from the earliest days, I, I guess I was aware of, of, uh, of writing, of literature. Um, I, I didn't know that much about the nuts and bolts of my father's career, but, um, but as I say, there were books everywhere. So very early on, uh, I tried to write. Uh, I put a, a piece of paper in that IBM Selectric and I tried to write something. Okay, fast forward years later, I'm hitting uh, my teenage years, and um, it seemed to me that there were um, uh, uh, other things that I had to figure out how to do, uh, the usual stuff in the human life cycle. You got to deal with um, making a living, with uh, meeting girls, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I didn't do art for years. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps. I did the athletic stuff that you talked about. Um, then much later on, 2004, I try to come back to my college to finish up after a 10-year layoff. And when I'm there, I take a summer school writing course taught by a woman named Deborah Wilkes. Uh, I'd never taken a fiction writing course before. And it inspired me mainly because of the readings. Uh, I, I really caught fire reading Robert Stone and reading Hemingway, and um, those two especially. Uh, nothing wrong with James Joyce, but I think Robert Stone really did it for me. His story, his short story, Helping, really grabbed me. Um, and so I started to try to write at that point. And um, I guess uh, that sort of brings us up to the present because that's what I've really been doing uh, for the past 13 years. Well, Atticus, you're on the right show. Um, I'm a vet. Mike's been a boxer. Jamie and I grew up you know, playing in punk bands and things like that. We all came into literature. And uh, Robert Stone and Hemingway, very well loved on the show as well. Um, so we can totally relate. And that, that brings me, you know, I wanted to bring up a point in your book. And one of the things that I thought was impressive about the characterization is that you really had a, a, a lot of people write, I come from a very blue collar family, and, and a lot of people portray, you know, the blue collar or, you know, lower, I guess, lower class, working class white people as like either... Um, Morons, morons, or like you know, I do meth and fight in the trailer, or like you know, I'm a Trump thumping, you know, and it's just like it, like all groups of people, it's very nuanced. And I, I just wanted to mention, you know, I, I think people we read a lot of books on the show, and I think you did a really great job of like portraying like the, the you know, the, like the white working class in Boston, and you, you don't really see a lot of that uh, portrayed accurately, so I just want to give you some kudos for that. Yeah, I, and I wanted to follow on that, too. I mean, that was something I noticed. This this book, and I think um, your fellow author, uh, Andre DeBow, who wrote Corsair Townies, you know, mentioned that when he read the book, he felt so many books now feel like they're kind of done by committee, and they're, they're put out in the world to be a commercial product. I felt this book was uh, a very honest and heartfelt look um, at a social class that 
too often is not written about. You know, or we stereotyped. See, yeah, we see we see a lot of books about professors uh, dating their students uh, in the modern era, and I'm frankly really tired of that. It was really interesting to see you know a story about a young man trying to find his way in the world, working with uh, a roofer, a contractor, a carpenter. I worked in the trades for many years myself, and I felt it was it was very authentic and honest and, well, and moved very well. I just want to give an example of that, and, and there's something very specific I'm thinking of the book that I think would have been harped on by um, other authors if they were looking for a more commercial product. So there are parts of Cor – Corey is the son in the book. He's a teenager for most of the book. And uh, his mother is Gloria. The title is The War for Gloria. My mother's name is also Gloria. That's right. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's a period of their lives where they're living in a, in, in a car. They're living out of Gloria's car. But it, it's only mentioned in, in passing a couple times in the book. Um, you know, it's not something – these characters aren't drawn out and characterized to be pitied. They're just followed. You, you forget – it's what good fiction does. You they're forget that victims. there's a writer yeah, they're not creating them. No. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that and that brings me to um, to a question I had. I've been thinking about a lot, and which which is the title, the the war for Gloria. There's so many ways you can think about this title, but what I was curious about was the choice of um, the noun war. You know, it could have been the struggle for for Gloria, and and I thought about um, you know. How, how that word is used a lot in, in movements now and struggle kind of implies a sort of victimization, whereas war turns turns you into the aggressor. And Gloria is, of course, uh, you know, the, the Latinate for glory. Um, it made me think of Where Men Win Glory by John Krakauer, which is about the Pat Tillman Odyssey. But uh, read you, that. Yeah. 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 Big, big, I, that, I love the description of Pat Tillman in that book, by the way. Yeah. Well, it, so so where he got that title was from the Iliad, and it, it's this section of of the Iliad where Homer's describing two guys meet on the battlefield, and then you know they have like a, a ten minute tea time in the middle of the battlefield, <laughs> but they're 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 about to try to kill each other, and then uh, they they figure out that they're related way back down the line, and they they decide not to fight each other. So one of the themes that I recognize in this book is. Is and I could relate to a lot thinking back to my adolescence. Is is Corey trying to find a way to get recognition, you know, for, from himself, from his father, from his peers? He's he's basically pouring his soul into these different receptacles. You know, it's his mother, his his father, his Tom. father figures to yeah. to girls he thinks he loves, to a sport, and these things all just pour pour it right back into him. Um, can you talk about the choice of the title and uh, and also uh, how the idea of the book changed over time? I know you thanked your editor in the back about what the book should or shouldn't be. Uh, yes, I thank you for your question. Um, yeah, I uh, the, the the title um, probably came from a UFC fight. Uh, Mac Danzig uh, won season six of the U of Tufts, and when he won, he dedicated his fight to his his victory to his mother Gail. I remember watching this probably in two thousand and seven, uh, and I had known Mac. I'd crossed paths with with him at Rico Ciparelli's gym in El Segundo in California in the early two thousands. And I, I'd never talked to him. And 
but when I, and so it was, first of all, it was amazing to see somebody that I'd seen in real life, to see them coming over the TV screen. That was astonishing. And then um, I was really struck by how he said, this is my mother's birthday today, my mother, Gail. Now his mother's name began with G. I was writing prep at the time, but that moment stuck in my head. And when I came time to write this book, which I knew was going to have something to do with these themes, with uh, ALS and, and the themes of adolescence and coming of age, that came back to me. I started thinking about Mac Danzig and what he had said. And I thought, and, and then I went with the, the name Gail. Gail, what's like Gail? And that, I kicked it around a little, and that's how I got Gloria. Um, and of course, because of the double meanings of Gloria, it did seem like the right title. So um, that's the origin there. Um, your other point, how did the book change as I went yeah, along? Yeah. When I began writing the book, I wasn't, um, I, I, I actually tried to, re I, I would say I was really trying to write two books at the same time, which was a big mistake. <laughs> I had just come off of reading a true crime called People Who Eat Darkness. Oh, I read that. Yeah, that's a great novel. I mean, uh, that's a great, that's a Japanese book, right? The Japanese guy? It, it, it's a, a book that takes place in Japan, about a crime that takes place in Japan. Yes, it's by uh, Richard Lloyd Perry, British guy, who's a foreign correspondent in Japan, I gather. And he writes about the case of a British citizen who goes missing in, in Tokyo. I'm with you. That book was chilling. And I, it, it hit me so hard and I admired it so much. I said, I, I, I thought, well, it would be great to write um, something that feels like true crime. So I really tried to do two things at the same time. In the end, one of them had to go. And, um, and uh, so I wandered around in confusion for years and years trying to resolve these two things. They didn't marry up properly together. Finally, I had to get rid of the... Uh, so-called true crime story, uh, the, this, this big extraneous thing that I tacked on. And really, I think what I wound up with was a drama and it freed the drama to um, fall into place the way, uh, the way it did. This week on The Biden Files, Biden orders all businesses to vaccinate employees, a seemingly drunk and rudy rants on 9-11, overdoses soar from Invermectin, a top general reveals he warned China and moved to stop Trump declaring war, Gavin Newsom easily survives a recall, and Biden's approval ratings continue to drop. These are The Biden Files. Day 234, September 10th. Biden ordered all businesses with more than 100 employees to require their workers to be vaccinated against COVID or face weekly testing. Saying, quote, our patience is wearing thin, Biden signed a pair of executive orders and issued new rules from the Department of Labor that will now require two-thirds of the American workforce to be vaccinated. That includes any business with over 100 employees, federal contractors and healthcare workers in any institution that receives Medicare or Medicaid funding. The Republican National Committee immediately pledged to sue the Biden administration. The governor of South Carolina, Henry Master, said he would fight President Biden, quote, to the gates of hell. Biden appears to be on extremely strong legal ground, however. In his speech, he also criticized several Republican governors for, quote, ordering mobile morgues instead of encouraging vaccinations. 
A federal appeals court reinstated that state's ban on school mask mandates. In July, Governor Ron DeSantis signed an executive order banning mask mandates in public schools and threatened consequences for districts that defied his order. Miami-Dade County Public Schools, which is the fourth largest district in the U.S., is among the 13 of Florida's 67 districts that had imposed mask requirements in defiance of that order. In response, the Florida Board of Education imposed funding cuts on those districts. Biden accused Republican governors fighting mask mandates and other COVID-19 precautions in schools of, quote, being cavalier with the health of these kids, adding, quote, we're playing for real here. This isn't a game. Capitol Police arrested a man armed with multiple knives, a bayonet, and a machete near the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington. Donald Craighead told Capitol Police he was on patrol and began talking about white supremacist ideology and other rhetoric pertaining to white supremacy. His pickup truck also had a swastika and other white supremacist symbols painted on it. Day 235, September 11th. Two living presidents used the anniversary of the September 11th attacks to urge Americans to come together in an effort to weather deep political and cultural divisions. Former President George W. Bush spoke from the United Flight 93 Memorial outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania, as he and President Biden acknowledged that what has happened in the years since has only challenged the notion that Americans do prize coming together. Shortly after Bush spoke, Biden arrived near Shanksville to lay a wreath and visit a boulder where, in 2001, a plane filled with passengers and crew members who had wrestled control from hijackers had hit the ground. Notably absent from the proceedings was another living president. Trump had received information about the memorial event in New York City, but his spokeswoman said he had instead chosen to visit a police station and a firehouse where he spoke little about September 11th and instead repeatedly denounced Biden. Trump also issued a series of statements that criticized Biden's handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and praised his allies, including Rudy Giuliani, his personal lawyer, as, quote, the greatest mayor in the history of New York City. Bush also called the January 6th Capitol riots extremists, warning that, quote, they are the children of the same foul spirit. Bush said the U.S. has seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. Bush added, it is our continuing duty to confront them. Trump responded by calling Bush a failed and uninspiring president who shouldn't be lecturing Americans about the threat posed by domestic terrorism. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani at a 9-11 commemoration dinner on Saturday called a top U.S. general an idiot, imitated Queen Elizabeth, and distanced himself from Prince Andrew. During an appearance at an annual dinner held at Cipriani, a seemingly drunk Giuliani wondered if General Mark Milley, quote, how's that guy a general? while imagining physically assaulting the decorated Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman because of his advice to close Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. Giuliani also claimed that Biden doesn't belong in New York City for the 20th anniversary of the Twin Tower attacks. And in a surreal happening, Triller, a social video app that is much less popular version of TikTok, put on a pay-per-view fight between a 58-year-old Evander Holyfeld, who hadn't fought in a decade, and a 44-year-old mixed martial artist, Victor Belfort, and then paid Trump and Donald Trump Jr. to serve as live commentators on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attack. Belfort won by a TKO in the first round after the referee stopped the bout because it was clear Holyfeld never should have been allowed into the ring. Jim Lampley, who was to serve as the announcer, pulled on on news that the Trumps were calling the fight. In the end, it proved to be one of Trump's highest profiles and lengthiest public appearances since leaving office, and a fairly rare event in light of a suspension from a number of social media sites. Day 236, September 12th. 
Veronica Wolski, a QAnon adherent whose recent hospitalization made her a cause celeb for the controversial medication Invermectin, died at Resurrection Medical Center. For more than a week, her supporters had besieged Resurrection with demands that Wolski be given Invermectin. That medication is typically used to treat diseases caused by parasitic worms. A video posted to the Telegram channel of right-wing attorney Lynn Wood showed him demanding over the phone that the hospital release Wolski to a person holding her medical power of attorney. Quote, there's an ambulance waiting for her outside. There's a medical doctor waiting for her to treat her. If you do not release her, you're going to be guilty of murder. Do you understand what murder is? House Democrats outlined their proposed tax increases on corporations and wealthy people to help offset the costs of Biden's $3.5 trillion economic plan. The House Ways and Means Committee calls for raising the corporate tax rate to 26.5% from 21% and raising the capital gains tax from 20 to 25%. Meanwhile, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin again said he will not support the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package. I cannot support it. There's no way. Congress doesn't think it can meet the September 27th deadline set by Nancy Pelosi for passage either. Kirsten Sinema, who is another moderate Democrat, has also expressed concern over the cost of the bill. The Biden White House has met with both Manchin and Sinema over the bill in recent days. The Biden administration appealed a Texas court ruling that called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program unlawful. U.S. District Judge Andrew Hannan ruled that the 2020 DACA program violated the Administrative Procedures Act and ordered the Biden administration to stop approving new DACA applications. However, the decision left intact the program's benefits for the more than 600,000 active DACA recipients. There are now 55,000 first-time DACA applications pending with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Office. Day 237, September 13th. California is bracing for a momentous recall election tomorrow with Governor Gavin Newsom battling to hold on to his seat. Some 46 candidates are vying to replace him, a mix of the sober and serious that includes Olympian and reality television star Caitlyn Jenner, the pink Corvette-driving Hollywood enigma Angeline, and arch-conservative talk show host Larry Elder. The recall effort is being driven by far-right mega-donors who see it as a rare chance to seize control of a populist state Newsom, however, has vastly outraised the GOP and enjoys a significant advantage in polling heading into the election. It was revealed the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff twice called his Chinese counterpart in the final months of the Trump administration to assure him that Trump had no plans to attack China in an effort to remain in power. He also said the United States was not collapsing. The revelations come in a new book by the Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, Peril. Mark Milley also took secret steps to limit Trump's ability to launch nuclear weapons because he feared he was unstable during his final days in office. Milley was, quote, certain that Trump had gone into a serious mental decline in the aftermath of the election and could go rogue. Milley called China twice to reassure them that a nuclear strike was not imminent. Milley was reportedly so concerned about Trump that later in a day he convened a meeting with his top commanders to remind them that the procedures for launching a nuclear weapon called for his involvement in the decision. Vice President Mike Pence also struggled more than was publicly known over how to navigate Trump's demands that he upend the election certification. Speaking privately to former Vice President Dan Quayle, Pence appeared open to going along with Trump's plan and pushed the false claim that Arizona's voting results were wrong. He then asked whether there was any way he could delay certification. Quayle told him no. Following the revelations, Trump called for dumbass Milley to be arrested for treason. President Biden said he has complete confidence in Milley. 
Southern hospitals are now reaching crisis points in intensive care units as the Delta variant has led to spikes in COVID cases not seen since last year's deadly winter wave. One in four hospitals in the South, also the least vaccinated portion of the nation, report more than 95% of ICU beds occupied. Hospital occupancy has exploded dangerously in a ban from New Mexico to North Carolina. Pennsylvania Republicans moved to seek personal information on every voter in the state as part of a brewing partisan review of the 2020 election results, rubber stamping more than a dozen subpoenas for driver's license numbers and partial social security numbers. The expansive request for personal information directed by Pennsylvania's Department of State and approved in a vote by Republicans on a state Senate subcommittee is the first major step in an election inquiry. The move adds the state of Pennsylvania to a growing list that have embarked on partisan-led reviews of the 2020 election. Day 239, September 15th. California Governor Gavin Newsom easily repelled a recall attempt in an election that is being seen as a harbinger for the 2020 races. Latino voters surged to the polls after Newsom and Democrats painted the opposition as dangerous acolytes of Trump. Newsom's critics started the recall because they opposed his stances on the death penalty and immigration, but it was his handling of the pandemic that won the day. Voters overwhelmingly said the COVID crisis was the number one issue on their minds. California has one of the nation's highest vaccination rates and one of its lowest rates of new virus cases, in part due to Newsom's mandates. The vote is also seen on a verdict on Trump and is a warning to Republicans. A federal judge has denied Trump's request to stop E. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit against him from moving forward. The case now proceeds to an appeals court, and it will weigh whether Trump is immune from the suit. Carroll alleges that Trump assaulted her in the Bergdorf Goodman department store in 1995 and then defamed her by calling her a liar when she went public with her claims. Trump and the Justice Department have argued that Trump cannot be sued because the comments were made while he was president. The Justice Department asked a federal judge to prevent Texas from enforcing a law that prohibits nearly all abortion in an escalation of a fight between the Biden administration and those states' Republican leaders. The Justice Department argued in an emergency motion that the state adopted the law known as Senate Bill 8 to prevent women from exercising their constitutional rights. That reiterates an argument the department made last week when it sued Texas. North Korea launched two ballistic missiles in a clear violation of multiple United Nations Security Council resolutions that ban the nation from conducting such tests. It appears to be that country's first missile test in six months. Hours later, South Korea announced they had gained submarine-launched ballistic missile technology, making South Korea the seventh country in the world to occupy SLBMs. The test by both Koreas in the same day highlighted an intensifying arms race on the Korean Peninsula. Nuclear disarmament talks between Washington and North Korea remain stalled. Day 240, September 16th. The number of Americans living in poverty fell to a record low last year due to the pandemic relief aid Congress enacted. Poverty fell to 9.1% in 2020. That is the lowest rate on record from 11.8% in 2019. The Census Bureau estimates direct checks lifted 11.7 million people out of poverty last year. Unemployment benefits and food assistance programs prevented an additional 10.3 million people from falling into poverty. The U.S. made a major move in geopolitical warfare by arming the nation of Australia with ballistic missiles. That deal, however, has strained the NATO alliance. The move drew a strong reaction from France as it presaged a deal that Australia was withdrawing from a $66 billion move to buy French-built submarines. China also reacted angrily, suggesting that the Biden administration was upping the ante much as the Reagan administration did against the Soviet Union in the 1980s. The Biden administration admitted that they had not told French leaders beforehand because it was clear they would be unhappy with the deal. 
One of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump for his role in inciting the January 6th insurrection announced he will not seek re-election in Ohio next year. Rep. Anthony Gonzalez, who was a former NFL player with a once bright political future, cited his two young children for the decision and noted the toxic dynamics in his party. He was the first Latino to represent Ohio in Congress. Gonzalez would have faced Max Miller in a primary. Trump has endorsed Miller, who is his former White House and campaign aide, as part of a bid to punish all those who voted for his impeachment. In a statement, Miller's campaign said Gonzalez had, quote, dishonored the office by betraying his constituents with the impeachment vote. The U.S. currently ranks last among the world's seven wealthiest democracies in COVID vaccination rates. Unvaccinated people are 11 times more likely to die of COVID. One in 500 Americans have died from COVID in the 19 months since the nation's first reported coronavirus case. 42% of Americans approve the job that Biden is doing as president, 50% disapprove. These are the Biden Files. Nancy Clem chatted with Kathy Schwalbe, an artist who focuses on food systems, water, agriculture, and reuse. Schwalbe discussed her mixed media practice, how art connects one to the environment, and being human. Spontaneous Vegetation airs every other Sunday at 5 p.m. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about this project of public mending that you're doing and why you felt it important to cast it this way. Um, Yeah. Sure, thank you. Um, Thanks for reading the invitation. Firstly, um, you're the second person that has quoted me on it and I'm, I'm always rather stunned that anyone pays attention to anything for more than about three seconds. And so uh, I appreciate that, number one. Um, I This was born out of uh, my own need to connect with people. I think it started there, um, inspired by several things, one including my interviewer, um 15 plus years ago invited me to her home invited me to your home nancy clem to mend as a um just as a way to get together in the winter and to uh fix things in a not such a solemn way to be together and and to mend things and i kind of kept that in my pocket i couldn't make it but i kept the the idea in the invitation in my mind and as a recreation therapist I've been doing mending groups in my long-term care communities for three decades and then um, uh, when I was one of the artist folks for for DK several years ago Barbara Kennan introduced me and the social practice piece I was working on and she said you know kind of like mending a life and I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, take someone outside of your own self to tell you what you're doing. <laughs> and then through the pandemic, I um, was thinking more solidly about gathering people to mend. And and even though we're not anywhere near the aftertime, we're still sort of in the in the COVID time. And, but knowing that 
things are regularly falling apart and getting glued back together and falling apart and getting mended. Um, we're sort of in the middle of things still falling apart in some places, right? And, uh, and in other places, um, there's a sense that it's not as crucial, at least for now, and there is mending going on. And so I wanted to be part of that. And I wanted to create the mending project and invite people in to mend as as a metaphor and as a as a, a, a functional thing. If people needed some things to mend, I've got mending supplies and I've got buttons, baby. <laughs> well, when I came to Jackson Park, I couldn't find you and you were hidden away between this Italian plum tree that was resplendent with all this beautiful fruit yes. and a sidewalk. Um, and your materials were arranged on this large, long piece of limestone and your sewing machine was connected to a gas power generator. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> what exactly uh, did you bring that week or do you bring to these mending sessions so you can be prepared for whatever shows up? Well, I picked up a, a, a cart that houses my sewing my my sewing machine. I got secondhand and and um, thread, elastic buttons. Um, we used a bodkin last week, which is this loop on one end, a pretty hardy piece of metal, and a hook on the other end. And we brought a piece of elastic through a woman's skirt. So it doesn't fall off her tiny hips anymore. She was thrilled. So <laughs> some other more esoteric sewing materials, and of course scissors and some fabric to do patching. Um, I've got a little bit of iron-on stuff, but we're more about sort of using a needle and thread and stitching uh, to uh, fix cuffs, as you know. And um, the only couple of things I uh, that are sort of out, out of my wheelhouse, fixing zippers. And someone brought a couple of down coats and, you know, a, a, a package of duct tape's probably going to do the best <laughs> thing for a down coat. And, and zippers, I'm like, it's time to get a new pair of pants or whatever. But so far, nobody's brought me zippers. <laughs> um, why is stitching, the simple act of stitching, so important or fundamental of focus of of this project really good question um it probably starts from the fact that i love it and um i've been doing some audio books over winter and i was looking for something to be able to do with my hands while i was doing audio books or or in a, or a movie and in the evening and so i needed because I just can't sit there like a lump. And so <laughs> I started stitching and and then it sort of grew into this whole thing. So I started stitching some items for another part of the project, which is um, uh, an addition of 10 mending boxes that are kind of part art, part function um, as, a, as a supplement to, to the social practice. So an object for someone actually to purchase or trade with me. 
um, about. And so I, I was stitching some things for those boxes too. And that's kind of how it all, it all. I, I like a needle and thread. There's something incredibly satisfying about um, creating something or fixing something um, that is hardy and that will uh, be with you for a little while longer. So Yesterday I had out my, my circular saw and my screwdriver and stuff. And I was working on a bench outside. I was, I was mending a bench. And that, <laughs> that whole thing was, was more than falling apart when I received it, but um, it's on the mend now. And it might even accommodate someone sitting on it. <laughs> so I kind of use the micro tools, the needles and thread and, I like to use hand tools too. I I kind of want to, um, you know, I think about a couple aspects of mending and mm -hmm. um, <coughs> one is you've kind of answered it, like why we mend together, but, and maybe you can add on that, but I uh, add to that, but I also am really curious about why is it important to mend in public? Mm. I think in in society, particularly these days, um, I feel like during the last 18 months or so, people have taken time for things they weren't taking time for before. Uh, how many sourdough bread bakers do we know now? Um, and so mending, I, I feel, has gone hand in hand with that. And I mended some socks in a in a more of a funny way they were black socks with big red wool stitches on it and and i posted it on facebook and i said well this happened today and people really really responded this is like december january and um it was just it probably took me about four minutes to mend those socks and now my toe doesn't stick through and hit the boot and be an annoyance. And <laughs> I could have bought another pair of socks. I could have worn another pair of socks, but I like those pair of socks. And so I do think people um, generally might be taking more time to do such things for themselves. And in as much as we haven't been physically in the same room uh, in the last 18 months, as much as some people would like, I realize this has been a gift to some. Um, and in and, and others, I think, are longing to be together like me sometimes, uh, to be with other people. And so, mm. sorry about that. And so that is... Uh, going to silence that sorry um <laughs> but that is that's sort of part of it too is um is being together because we haven't been able to and being together in a safe manner outside where the worry is not as uh, uh strong This is Rowan, what you're describing is, is sort of like, I was thinking, actually thinking about this uh, uh, recently. I, as you know, I'm a media disruption developer, so I have, I have to think about media a lot and its place in society and in all of our lives. And if you think about it, what you went on was uh, sort of a, a spiritual hero's journey 
which which is one of the first, if you might call it, one of the first algorithms um, that was ever developed. I mean, if you if you think about it, the hedro's journey is all about uh, modular thinking, sort of like a lot of code is. It's uh, it's class based. It is uh, uh, it fits in in boxes and it goes from one point to another point, doing different uh, carrying out different tasks in each. Um, in, in reality, I mean, we've been people for as long as we've been storytellers. I think we've been coders. Don't you agree? I don't know if I agree entirely because there's a saying um, in, uh, I forget, perhaps from Lao Tzu or Confucius who said, if you meet your hero on the road, kill him. I believe it is a a Zen koan, perhaps. Mm. And to that end, that is why I, I I don't necessarily like the ideas of heroes. But uh, to to find some common ground, I would agree that the original programs, the these the original uh, algorithms, if you will, definitely do come from a place of of myths and legends. It, it is there is numerous studies involving things like the Kabbalah, where you look at these ancient. Uh, texts, these ancient mythological or religious texts, and by assigning various numbers to them and cal- doing calculations, uh, th- this practice of numerology, there, there are programs that can, be, that can be found. As a matter of fact, I believe it was the Dead Sea Scrolls mm-hmm. where uh, through a series of substitutions and uh, sort of programming and what have you, uh, within the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. there is a code when translated to Fortran that will say "Hello World." Um, so the the the, the link yeah. between in fact this is it's it's more common than you think. So many of these ancient myths, in reality, were these "Hello World" statements. It's what we found from a variety of uh, of very particular culturally relevant algorithms. I, I liken it to. I actually liken it to the. Uh, there's sort of like think of it as Homer's The Odyssey. Uh, Homer's The Odyssey was sort of the original open source uh, program where, if you think about it, H- Homer downloaded all this code about, you know, Agamemnon and, you know, horses and Greek gods and added his own. It's it's really Ag- I mean Homer was the original open source coder, if if you think about it. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen.